0: It is going to be back again with you guys this morning, and, and this is the first time, the first time in a really long time. We're actually wrapping up a series we started back in August uh, called The Big Story, where we've been going through the big story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story of Scripture all together. And so this is actually the last week, so we're going to be in Revelation 21 this morning. Uh, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn there, uh, you can go ahead and do so. We're going to be talking about heaven and how everything actually ends Uh, this morning. Now, before we jump into that, I feel like I need to give you a little disclaimer here. I'm not one of those pastors that's actually been there and come back. Right? like We're going to be talking about the end in heaven and all these things. Like Evidently, there's a lot of pastors that have been there and come back, and they've written books about it, and, and they're filling our bookstores. And like for only fourteen ninety five plus tax and shipping, you can purchase one of those things and learn all you want to know um, about heaven and uh, just not one of those. Evidently, uh, Babylon B wrote an article about this not long ago. Any of you guys read this? Satirical website, kind of funny. Recent shortage of heaven and back trips puts family Christian stores out of business. Like this is a big problem going around in Christian circles right like there 's I guess uh, you know not as many pastors are going there and back anymore, so um, anyway, not long ago there's a lot of there was a lot of books that were adorning the shelves there, and uh, we love to get our eschatology from uh, the stories of kids who've been there and come back, evidently. I happen to be one of those preachers that thinks that the Word of God is sufficient to inform how everything is going to end and inform our views of the future, and so that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Uh, also, the second disclaimer I want to make is we're not going to be getting into a lot of the details about the timeline and the order of events and how we got to those order of events and, and things like that. We're also not going to be talking about like what every little thing uh, symbolically represents and, and who the Antichrist may actually be. I think that those are kind of some terrifying conversations to be a part of. Uh, honestly, I got a little freaked out this past week. I was doing some re-study of Revelation, started thinking the rapture was going to happen on Tuesday, and like Rattabaw had something to do with the Antichrist or something like that. I just started thinking, you know, this is not going to be helpful if we start going that direction there. So just not going to do that today. I do want to talk about the end times, though. That's what we're going to be getting into, because how you think about the end and how much you think about the end will absolutely uh, dictate how you live today. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon talks about this. He says, Time is short. Eternity is long. It's only reasonable that this short life be lived in light of eternity. It's exactly what Revelation is going to be saying to us this morning. And so again, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and pick it up. Revelation chapter 21. Um, Like I said, this is the last week in the story, which means we've covered a lot of ground as we've been talking about the big story of Scripture. And so we kicked it all off back in August, talking about how everything began. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created all that is and said that it was good, Right? Uh, just a few chapters later, we came along, mankind, Adam and Eve came along, and we messed the entire thing up, brought sin into the picture. Uh, death and separation from God came into the scene. And as soon as sin came into this big story, uh, God initiated his redemptive purposes. He initiated his, his mission into the world to redeem everything that sin destroyed. And all of it's culminating in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning, God created everything good. Uh, we messed it all up. And then Jesus came to make it all right. And the way that he does that is by, is by living the sinless life that we were not able to live, that we were supposed to live back in the Garden of Eden, uh, by dying a death, a substitutionary death on our behalf, which our sin brought upon us, and then offering this free gift of salvation, uh, which is not only an eternity future, but is also present right now, now and in the future, to any and all who would come to him in genuine faith, believing that he is the Son of God and the only one who can actually forgive us of our sin and grant eternal life life. So in the beginning, uh, God created everything good. We messed it all up. Jesus came to make it all right. And then one day still future, uh, one day still future, Christ promises to return again and to make all things brand new. And so that's what we're going to be talking about in Revelation. That's the subject matter that Revelation is going to be talking about. It's our still future hope of what Christ has promised to do. Uh, Now, if you're spending time in the book of Revelation, you know that this is a very Uh, It's confusing in a lot of different ways. It kind of reads like a sci-fi novel, although it is not sci-fi by any stretch of the imagination. It kind of reads like there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of um, symbolism and things like that. Very confusing material. But the message of Revelation is actually very simple. Uh, Every step along the way, it is God giving us a vision of the end that will carry us through today. It is God giving us a vision of how it's all going to end that will help us live now in light of eternity. That's the message of Revelation. Uh, Now, the author is going to be someone that we all know very well. It's going to be the Apostle John. Uh, You may remember him from such bestsellers as John, and uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I think he got better at the, the, the titling of his books a little bit later on in the, as, as he goes. But he's going to be writing this book in 95 A.D. from the island of Patmos where he's been exiled by the Romans. Now, if you remember from the story, as soon as the resurrection of Christ happened, the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and the church was born somewhere in the late 30s. Um, the gospel began to spread, and the Romans wanted to kill that movement as fast and as soon as they possibly could. And so that resulted in the martyrdom of most of the apostles, right? Uh, James was actually beheaded. Matthew was stabbed to death. Peter and his wife were actually crucified. And John was actually boiled alive in oil. Now, the problem with John was that he didn't die right? Like that's very unfortunate. You're getting boiled alive in oil, and it did not actually kill him. And it also did not permanently scar him or mar him or anything like that. And so naturally, the Romans, as they're boiling him alive in oil, they're freaked out by the entire thing, which is exactly why they exile him to the island of Patmos to live for the rest of his days. They're freaked out by the whole thing. And that's where God is going to meet him in this vision and give him a vision of the end uh, so that we can live now in light of how it all ends. Now, as best as we can understand it, I do want to give us a broad outlook of kind of what we're going to be talking about and where we all fit into the whole scheme of things. So as best as we can understand it today, uh, here's kind of the order of events that we're not going to really debate much today, sorry. But uh, at the very beginning, some time in the near future is going to be the rapture, right? This is going to be the imminent return of Christ. We don't know exactly that day. This is not the second coming of Christ. We'll talk about that just a little bit. But first is the rapture. Thank you, Kirk Cameron, for helping us understand what this whole thing is going going to look like. But it's talked about. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this is going to be the imminent return of Christ in the clouds to bring up those who are believing and uh, to spare them from the seven-year tribula- tribulation that is taking place right after that. Um, as soon as that takes place, begins the seven-year tribulation. Halfway through that time comes the Antichrist Uh, There's all these judgments and things of that nature. At the end of the tribulation is going to be the second coming of Christ. This is going to be the return of Christ. And with the return of Christ, he's going to bring in the millennial kingdom, which is going to be the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. He's going to defeat Satan. Uh, He's going to defeat those things. He's going to establish his thousand-year reign reign. Upon this earth. At the end of those thousand years, it's going to be the great white throne of judgment, which Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 through 15, talks about. Satan's going to be released from captivity for a short amount of time, in which he's going to be immediately defeated again by Jesus and cast into the lake of fire, never to return again. It's going to be that final judgment taking place right there. And then right after that takes place is that Jesus is going to make a a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today in Revelation chapter 21. You guys got that? You (laughs) Crystal clear, right? Um, And so that's what we're going to pick it up today. The new heavens, the new earth, which Revelation 21 is going to be talking about. Still time, future. So let's pick it up together in verse one and uh, we'll see what he has to say. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so back when I was in college, I had a professor that was very antagonistic to the things of God. And he loved to make all kinds of jokes and stuff about heaven and hell. And he used to just rip on heaven and kind of our modern concept of heaven. And he would make jokes about it and say, okay, I've heard all kinds of things about heaven and hell. And it seems to me like uh, the party's going to be down there in hell. Like all the cool people are down there, my friends are going to be down there, and like that's where all the fun's going to be happening. And so I don't really understand why anybody would actually want to go and be in heaven with, with Lord as you guys talk about it. Anybody, any of you guys hear anything very similar to this kind of a concept? A lot of people, yeah, there's a lot of people today that have a very difficult time connecting with this modern concept of heaven that we think about and talk about today. Right, like we like we we think about it like it's like okay, I'm just gonna be somehow floating around in the clouds and like living out eternity, floating and sitting on a cloud somewhere. I'm gonna be wrapped in this perfectly white sheet that I'm not allowed to get dirty or anything like that. I'm not allowed to have any fun. Uh, I'm gonna be playing my harp all day long. I'm gonna be cuddling with other angels and and uh, and just singing songs like all day long, right? And the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of us that have a hard time connecting with this modern concept of heaven, and it's just nothing like what John describes for us here in this passage, right? J.D. Greer is going to talk about three different words that describe John's vision of heaven here in this text. Uh, the first word that he's going to talk about is in verse 1. It's called renewal. And that's what going to be seeing when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, I want you to remember the timeline here. What he's talking about has not actually happened yet. This is not what happens when you and I uh, pass away and immediately go into the presence of God, right? He's not talking about what we typically think of when when we think about heaven. Now, heaven is a biblical concept. 276 times in the New Testament it's talked about. Uh, Most of the time it's used to refer to the sky, where birds fly, where airplanes fly and things of that nature. Other times it's used to talk about space, like where the planets and stars are and things of that nature. Other times it's used to refer to the actual and literal dwelling place of God. It's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 14 when he's talking about his father's house. And he says, if I go and I prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come back and take you to be with me uh, that you also may be where I am. Right? It's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he talks about longing for the day when he's absent from the body and home with the Lord, right? There's this immediacy to heaven. Uh, it is a, it, it, believers who pass away immediately go into the presence of God uh, at that point in time. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He says, Today you're going to be with me in paradise, right? There's immediacy to this whole thing. He's not talking about going to the beach paradise or something like that. He's talking about being in the literal, actual, physical dwelling place of God. But here's what John's saying here in this text. What John is saying is that that's not our ultimate hope. right? That's not our ultimate hope. Right? This, as we think about heaven today, that's not the thing that we put all of our hope and joy into. All that that is, is a glorious and beautiful uh, but temporary resting place until the time when Jesus returns again, brings heaven down to earth, and makes all things brand new. Uh, that's what he's saying here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. Now, there's two Greek words we need to be very familiar with so we can understand what he's talking about here with this new heaven and new earth. Um, two Greek words for new. The first one is neos, which literally means brand new in a creative sense, like you're going to be creating something brand new out of nothing, uh, out of nothing that even exists at that point in time. Um, the other Greek word is kynos, which means to be renewed or remade out of something which already does exist. And that's the word that's actually being made, used uh, in this text right here. And so, when we're talking about this concept of a brand new earth, we're, we're not talking about something that we're going to be completely unfamiliar with. We're talking about something that we have some sort of familiarity with. Um, a great way to think about it is kind of like restoring or renewing an old classic car, right? You guys, I don't know if you guys like doing this or I, I kind of wish I would have used Chip and Joe. We probably should have gone with them. But anyway, it's kind of like you could have used the same thing there. But like anybody know what kind of car this is? It is a Mercedes-Benz, right? It's a 1955 Mercedes-Benz SL300, uh, if you know your cars or anything like that. And so the top picture is what it was uh, many, many years after 1955, uh, broken down, rusted out, things of that nature. Many thousands of dollars later, three years later, uh, you see the beauty at the very, very bottom. It is a renewed version of a 1955 Mercedes-Benz SL300, and it's exactly what we're talking about when we talk about this concept of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, British theologian N.T. Wright says that we get this glimpse, uh, we get a glimpse of what he's talking about in the new resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which Paul is going to talk about as the first fruits of all creation. Okay, and so uh, a first fruit is exactly that. Um, if you're a farmer, the, the purpose of it is to get a first gathering of crops here. You're going to taste it, and you're going to test it, and you're going to see what you can expect from the rest of the crop. And it's exactly what he's saying. We, we resurrected Jesus. It has, he has this literal and physical body uh, this still has visible wounds. His disciples are able to physically touch him. They're able to sit at a table with him, have conversations with him. Uh, however, his body does not have the exact same limitations as any other physical body did at that point in time. I mean, one minute he's going to be eating with them, talking with him, touching him, shaking hands and things like that. Next minute he's going to be completely gone. And what N.T. Wright says is that one day, God is going to be doing with the entire cosmos what's already been done with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so, earth is going to be very recognizable to us, it's, but it's going to, be very, it's going to be so much greater than anything we've ever seen or experienced, right? It's going to be everything that we loved about the old uh, without the curse of sin. Which is why Augustine, I love the way Augustine puts it, he says this, he says, if these are the beauties that are afforded to sinful man, then what does God have in store for those who love him? In other words, what he's saying, he's looking around here and he's saying, if these are the beauties that God has in store for us, sinful man, and, and, and we're looking out at the world and we're seeing that it's cursed by the penalty of sin, and we're seeing things and calling them beautiful, and I'm looking at different things and I'm experiencing joy and pleasure from a broken, fallen world, if those are the things that he's given a sinful man, then what in the world is it going to be like when it's no longer tarnished by the stain of sin? Church, can you even imagine what that day is going to be like? I mean, next week we're going to be off in Maui, Hawaii, our uh, first vacation out in Hawaii we've ever been. Uh, we're going to be doing a destination wedding for a cu- couple here at the church. And by the way, yes, uh, if you're ever doing, de- you ever need somebody to do destination weddings out in Hawaii, we are always available for that. Um, but like, this is going to be our first trip out to Hawaii, right? And we're trying to prepare Caleb for this trip and trying to help him understand, buddy, like we're going to Hawaii. Like how do you convince, and, and how do you paint the picture for a five-year-old what, what Hawaii's like? Like he's been out to Galveston before, right it's not exactly the same thing i'm like hey buddy you know like you remember when we went to galveston i'm like it's nothing like that right it's like not even close to the same thing and of course the temptation is to make this comparison and to be like all right caleb like like galveston is this corrupted tainted version of the world and like hawaii is this glorified version of the world and things like that but Like, what we're seeing here in the text is, like, the Bible is actually saying that the both things are cursed versions. Like, Hawaii is the cursed version of things that are going to come. Church, can you even imagine, like, what in the world does a glorified Hawaii look like? I mean, can you you even imagine what that's going to look like? Like, what in the world does a glorified filet mignon taste like? Like, I literally think about that all day long when I'm sitting in my office. I'm like, I can't even imagine what what that's going to be like. You're going to be able to drive on 635 and not see an accident or get in traffic. Like, you're going to be able to eat at a uh, Waffle House and not get a disease. Like, like, everything's going to be made new, right? Like, that's what we're talking about here. It's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth when Christ returns and he makes all things brand new. I love the way that Tim, Tim Keller talks about it. He says, our greatest hope, church, is not in, in a heaven that's a pie in the sky, but, it, but our hope is in, uh, in heaven because I butchered that quote. Heaven's not so much a pie in the sky as it is a feast here on earth. Heaven's not so much a pie in the sky as a feast here on earth because in that time, Christ is going to return again and he's going to bring heaven down to earth and he's going to be making all things. Second word is reunion. Uh, reunion. We're going to see that in verse 3. He's going to say this. He's going to say, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and they uh, and will be their God. In other words, this is going to be a place where God and his people are finally reunited once again. Church, anyone else obsessed with watching all those videos of the soldier family reunions? You know, when dad comes home from war and you, know, you see them on your social media feed and like, you know exactly what's going to happen, right? And you're at work and you're going, okay, I don't want to get sloppy here at work and stuff. And you're kind of going, I know what's going to happen and you still can't, you can't help but click on it anyway. Uh, you, know, you know the whole story already. You see it come across your social media feed and like, dad's been away at war for over a year now. And you know, he's been saving all of our lives and we didn't even know about it and uh, no one knows exactly what's going on, and he's heroic and all these different things and finally he gets the chance to come home, but he doesn't want to tell his family about it and so he wants to surprise him, and all of a sudden he shows up at the back door and he's like knocking on the door and all of a sudden, wife comes to the door and she opens it up, and she sees her husband right there, and like she loses it, and like he's holding a giant bouquet of flowers, and like she loses it and just runs and like jumps on him and mauls him to death because you know it's been like over a year and so like the kids, they'd come and do the exact same thing. they run down the stairs, and they're weeping and crying because dad's home, and they jump in his arms, and he's carrying like five people at one time. And like it's exactly what John's describing here in this scene, right? Like, like there's going to be a beautiful and glorious reunion for any and all who've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church parents are going to be reunited with their kids that they've lost over the years. Like siblings are going to be reunited with their siblings that they never had a chance to meet. Like widows who have been mourning for years and have been lonely for years, missing their loved ones. They're going to finally be reunited with their loved one once again. And the beauty of this text is like like that's not even the best part of what he's describing here. Like the beauty of this is the greatest part of this whole thing is that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to actually be reunited with Jesus Christ. We're going to actually get to meet him and see him face to face when he lives with us and dwells among his people. I love the way that Bart Miller describes this in his song, like I can only imagine. Uh 1999, he writes this song. and You guys remember singing this quite a bit, 20 years ago? And uh, Anybody see the movie that came out most recently? I can only imagine. It's the story of how he wrote this song. Bart Miller's the author, Mercy Me, uh, very, very famous 20 years ago especially. The movie comes out and describes uh, how he writes this song, and he's just envisioning this scene where he's with his own father who's recently passed away, and he goes and he meets Jesus for the first time face-to-face. Beautiful lyrics. Here's what he says. He says, surrounded by your glory. What will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah or will I even be able to speak at all? I can only imagine what that day is going to be like. In other words, church, like, like words, we, like we're not even going to be able to describe the joy of being able to see Jesus face to face that day, like over and over and over again in Revelation, we get these these pictures of the throne room of God, where the elders and the saints and the angels are all beholding his beauty, they're seeing him face to face, and the only thing that they can think to do is fall down on the ground and cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come and it just says that day and night they never stop singing those words, they're beholding Jesus, they're seeing him, they're in his presence, they're Savior, and they're just crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come over and over and over again. Church, like the psalmist gets this, like he understands exactly what's gonna be taking place. Psalm 27, 4 he says, one thing I've asked that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be able to behold your beauty and to be able to meditate in your temple. Church, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this day we're gonna be reunited with our Savior. This day we're gonna be reunited with the Messiah the promised son of God the king of all kings and the lord of all lords we're going to be reunited with him we're going to be beholding his beauty we're going to be staring at him face to face and we're going to be able to worship him but this time faith won't even be required because we're going to be there in his presence staring at him face to face because one day Christ is going to return again and he's going to bring heaven down to earth and he's going to make all things brand new so that you and I can be reunited with him for all of eternity church I'm telling you that's incredibly good news like just a massive, massive reunion. Like nothing like you've ever experienced here on earth. It's going to be kind of like the soldier reunion, but like times infinity. It's going to be kind of like your family reunion you actually enjoy going to, but, but like but, but times infinity. Like nothing you've ever experienced in your life. The final word he talks about is release. Meaning a total and complete release from the fallout of sin. But that's what he's describing there in verse 4. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's going to be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more chronic illness, no more aching joints, no more depression, no more fear, no more worry, no more miscarriage, no more stress, no more misunderstanding, no more ERs, no more chemo treatments, no more hospital visits, no more funeral homes. Why? Because the old order of things will have passed away. Meaning not only is there going to be a renewed heaven and earth, but he's going to be making all things new, including our bodies, that are going to be completely untarnished by sin. And so gluten used to be a problem, but it's just not going to be a problem anymore. Like dairy and desserts, like they used to make you unfit and things like that, and now they're going to give you a six-pack. It's, it's, it's in all the symbolism of revelation, I promise. Though. But again, like what he's saying here, like that's not even the best part of what he's talking about. Like, that's all the superficial stuff. Like, the best part is that you and I are going to be able to see the world through eyes that are completely untarnished by sin. Like, you and I are going to be able to see one another. We're going to be able to see people as God sees people. Like, we're going to be able to see people as image bearers of God, as he created us to be from the very beginning. We're going to be able to see people through eyes that are no longer corrupted by selfishness, by suspicion, by jealousy, by lust, or by greed, or by fear or insecurity, or anxiety, or worry, or stress, or fear, or any of those things. I love the way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The body that is sown is perishable, but is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. In other words, our resurrected bodies aren't gonna be broken down by age, by disease, by abuse, or by years and years and years of decay. They're gonna be spiritual, they're gonna be imperishable, and they're gonna be raised in glory and in power. I love the way that Johnny Erickson Tata talks about this. If you never heard her story before, know who she is, but uh, uh, Johnny's a quadriplegic who broke her neck as a teenager Um, many, many years ago. She's now in her 70s, and she spent most of her life kind of sharing her testimony of how God has used that accident to bring her into closer relationship with him and how grateful she actually is for it. It's an incredible testimony, but here's how she talks about uh, the beauty of this day. She says, I hope in some way that I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I'll stand up from that wheelchair on resurrected legs And I'll be next to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will feel those nail prints in his hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know exactly what I mean because he'll recognize me from how hard I leaned on him during my sufferings. And then I'll say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you're right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned upon you. And the harder I leaned upon you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Now, if you like, you can send that thing straight to hell. (laughs) Why? Because when Christ returns, he's bringing heaven down to earth and he's making all things brand new so that you and I can be reunited with him for all of eternity. He continues and he says in verse five, he says, write this down for these words like they're trustworthy and true. In other words, it's, it's, it's not like the testimonies and the books that you're reading in the Christian bookstore, Like like these words right here, they are trustworthy and true. In other words, you need to write this down because you need a vision for the end. You need to know how the whole thing's gonna end if you're gonna ever find hope for today. Write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all these things. I will be their God. They will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Church, why in the world is he saying these things? Like, what is the point of him writing the book of Revelation? Like, verse 6, he says that he's talking to the thirsty, all who are lost and dead in their sins, all who are far away from from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, right now, today, you who are thirsty, right now, Jesus gives freely from the wellspring of life. Verse 7, he's talking to all who are already victorious in Christ, and he's saying, take hope now in everything that's still to come. In other words, you can cling to this right now today. In other words, everything that he is writing is that we may live now in light of the end. It's why he writes these letters to the churches there at the very beginning of Revelation. Chapter 2, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says this. He says, I know your good deeds and all of your hard work. I know your perseverance, but I have this one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. In other words, you've worked really, really hard. You've done a lot of great things, but in the process of doing all these really, really great things, you've forgotten about me. And what he's saying is you need to repent and live now in light of the end. At the end of that verse, he says, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Church, every single church that he addresses here is that they may live now in light of what's still to come. To Smyrna, he says, I know that you've been slandered and persecuted. Don't be afraid. Live now in light of the end. Stay faithful, and I'm going to give you a victor's crown. Same thing to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and even to the church in Laodicea in chapter 3. He says, I know your deeds, Laodicea, how you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Then comes verse 19. So be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. Live now in light of the end. Here I am. I'm standing at the door and knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I'm going to come in and eat with that person and they will with me. Church, who's he speaking to right here? This is not an evangelistic message. He's speaking to the church, to people that should know him. And he's saying, repent and live now in light of, these, in, in light of what's still to come. And he's speaking to people like the people there, there in Ephesus who are so busy working. And he's saying, don't be caught up in your deeds and doing all these things so much so that you forget about me. And he's speaking to the people like the people in Smyrna who are faithfully following Jesus no matter the cost. And he says, stay faithful to me even though you're being persecuted. And to the people like Pergamum and Thyatira, who are following the trends of culture to engage in all kinds of idolatry and sexual immorality, he says, stop. Stop sleeping with your neighbor's wife. Stop sleeping with the person that you're working with. Stop looking at pornography. Stop lusting over everyone who walks in your path. Stop worshiping all kinds of little G gods that are not actually gods to begin with. To the people like Sardis, who worked really, really hard to build these strong religious reputations, he says, none of what you're doing is even real. You're like empty, whitewashed tombs. It's like you're dead inside. You're, you're spending all this time developing this strong reputation for something that's not even true on the inside. You're kind of like the Pharisees that Jesus spent so much time rebuking all throughout his ministry. Like what you're doing isn't even real. Repent, live now in light of eternity. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and all of your strength. And to the people like Laodicea, who, which is the American church today, by the way, he's saying, stop being lukewarm. Stop pretending and stop playing church. Stop thinking that following me is some part-time job that you may or may not want to be a part of. That's what he's saying, church. Live now in light of the end. Like, live now in light of the end. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And I'm ringing the doorbell over and over and over again. I'm telling you how the entire thing is going to end. And if anyone will open up their door, I will come in and eat with them. And they will come and eat with me, church. All of this is happening. Christ is going to come back again. And when he does, he's going to bring heaven down to earth. He's going to make all things brand new so that we can be reunited with him and live with him for all of eternity. And and how we think about eternity then and how we think about the end will absolutely dictate how we live today. It's why Paul's going to say things like, For I consider these sufferings of the present time not even worthy to be compared to the glory which is still to come. In other words, when I look back at the entirety of my life and I think about all of my sufferings, all of uh, the beatings and the torture and the prison and the ridicule and the scorn of thousands and thousands of people, what he's saying is none of those things are even worthy to be compared to the glory which is still to come. Church, how in the world do you say that? How do you say that none of these things can even compare to the glory which is still to come unless you know because you know because you know all about the incredible reunion that's about to take place? Like, how do you say that unless you know about the renewal that Christ, is going to come, that Christ is going to bring when he brings heaven down to earth? How do you say that unless you know because you know about the release from the penalty and fallout of sin that's about to take place? Church, he knows what's about to happen. He knows that when Christ returns, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. He knows that our eyes are no longer going to be corrupted by sin, by, by selfishness and by suspicion and by greed and lust and fear and insecurity because when Jesus Christ returns, the old things will have passed away and behold, new things will have been brought in. And church, knowing that those things, knowing exactly what's going to take place is everything when it comes to living today one of the ways i've described it probably four other times here i love somebody shared this with me a long time ago and i kind of love this whole analogy but it's kind of like watching a a movie for the second or third time or watching of your favorite football game on on dvr when you already know what happened i'll never forget you know years ago i was watching the uh, florida versus tennessee football game and i was out with some friends and so i recorded the whole thing and and uh and, of course, one of my buddies busted in, and he told us the score of the game before I watched it, and I was all mad and angry about it, but I was like, all right, we won. That's awesome. And so I go back after the retreat, and I try to watch this game, and it was a really, really good game. I don't know if you, none of you remember it all, all except for me. Um, okay, we get down to the fourth quarter, and the Gators are down by six points, and it's less than a minute to go, and we're deep in Florida territory, and it's fourth down and, fif- fourth down and 15 yards to go, and so pretty much uh, we're out of the game. We think that there's no chance of winning this whole thing, and they scan the crowd, right? They do this. They do this. Um, they scan the crowd. And of course, all the Tennessee fans—they're going nuts. They're screaming and yelling and all these different kinds of things. And I'm just kind of looking at that, laughing to myself, going, "You don't know what I know." Sure enough, Will Greer throws a little out pattern. Antonio Callaway takes it all the way to the house, and amazing come from behind victory, and the Gators win that game, and it's just awesome. And I'm cheering and excited and stuff like that. And church, it matters. Like knowing the end and knowing how everything ends, it matters for how you live today. No fear, no anxiety, no stress, no worry when you know how everything's going to end. Never forget I was out in South Sudan not long ago and one of the villagers, we were doing some work out in one of the villages out there and he just came up to our group and he's like, why are you guys here? Why in the world would you ever come from Dallas, Texas all the way to South Sudan to help some people like us? And we just said very, very simply, we believe this entire thing is true. We believe the entire thing is true. Church, I really believe this, I really, and I hope you believe this too. I really believe that in the very, very beginning, God created everything that is and said that it was good. I really believe that he created every man, woman, and child uniquely in his image that gave us all dignity and value and honor. I really believe that not far into that whole thing, that we messed the entire thing up by rebelling against him in sin. And when we did so, we broke our relationship with him when we ushered in sin and death into the world for the rest of history. I really believe that God in his infinite love for us established his mission very early on, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I really believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I really believe that he lived the sinless life that we could not ever live. I really believe he went to that cross as a substitute for me and for you and for all of us. Not as an example of how to love really, really well, but because our sin put him there. And I really believe that three days after he was crucified, dead, and buried, he really did conquer sin and death. And I really believe that he offered this free gift of salvation to any and all who would simply come to him in genuine faith, recognizing that he is the Son of God and that he alone is the one who can forgive us of our sin and actually grant eternal life. And I really believe that one day still future, he will return again. And when he does, he's bringing heaven down to earth and he's making all things new so that you and I can be reunited with him for all of eternity. And what Revelation is saying is let's live now. In light of that end, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more sitting on the sidelines, no more plastic faces during worship. Let's do today what we're going to be glad we did tomorrow. Let's live now in light of what's coming up. Church, we really are going to see him one day face to face. We really are going to get to be there and to be able to to touch him and to be able to behold his beauty, behold his glory.